<laughs> Welcome to Week in Horror. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. The podcast that deep dives all the films you love. You gotta be fucking kidding. The week they dropped in horror history. We all go a little mad sometimes. With your horror hosts. JL. When a shirtless Sam Elliott with no mustache takes out a, an alligator with a uh, with an oar, that's the kind of movie I'm looking for. Eugene. And we're just casually just like, yeah, so that's probably the best way to go, light someone on fire with gasoline. Alex. It would not be an original lineup if I didn't have fucking technical <laughs> Johnny O. Now, it's not an Amityville. Or wherever it's Amityville. And Aaron. They, they got manure to work with and nothing very from it. <laughs> News, trailers, trivia, special guests, and more. You're going to need a bigger boat. Live show every Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central at YouTube.com slash Week in Horror. Welcome to prime time, bitch! And wherever you listen to podcasts. One by one, we will take you. Week in Horror. <laughs> Stay scared. <laughs> welcome, 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 horror fans. It is Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. That means it's time for another freshly cut episode of the Week in Horror podcast. The only podcast where the Blue Plate special is always terror. And if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast host, you too can join us here on YouTube for our live show. So you too can get in on all the bloody fun. What are y'all waiting for? Join us. This week, we are covering select horror films released September 4th through September 10th. Thank you all so much for joining us. I am JL, and with me tonight is Aaron. Hello, everybody. The irrepressible Aaron Reese. Yeah. <laughs> uh, One bad Bob. day is enough to repress me. What are you talking about? <laughs> Crap, the meal came late. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, we have a bunch of stuff to chat about tonight uh, things that came down the uh, some cool stuff that i found that i want to share with the uh, with the live chat we have some some cool new or some interesting news that came down i want to get people's opinions on but a uh, whole bunch of stuff so before we dive into it um i want to see i want to say hi to everybody that's in the chat and let's do this real quick let's fire up the the patreon banner bam there's our patreon banner and we'll start off i want to cover all this because we got a bunch of stuff we got to cover first and foremost we have a brand new patreon a brand new patron, Denova28, is a brand new patron, a brand new mastermind patron for the Weekend Horror Podcast. So we do appreciate that, Denova. Welcome to the family and all the Thanks. people who pay us to love them. <laughs> <laughs> We're horrors like that. We absolutely are. <laughs> we don't misrepresent. <laughs> we own it. We have to own it. You know, we, we, <laughs> there's no choice but to... <laughs> It's the only way into the industry, man. Oh, God. Just uh, all day long. So thank you so much, Denova. Pleasure being here. We see you there in the live chat. So thank you so much for that support. We do appreciate it. As you see, your name is down there in the banner where all of our patrons are, all of those individuals who help us to make the show the amazing little podcast that it has become since we started this bad boy almost four years ago. So thank you so, so very, very much. Let's see who else we got in the chat. We got Triggered Lime. He was here. Says, sadly, I'll be asleep. Just wanted to swing by to wish y'all a great stream. I'll be watching with my morning coffee. Thank you so much, Triggered Limey. You rock, dude. We do appreciate it. And I hope you enjoyed those movie recommendations that I gave you. And then, of course, because uh, he was looking for Norwegian horror. So I recommended things like Fail. Because he'd already seen, like, Let the Right One In. So I made some recommendations for some good ones. So 
All right. Travis Brown is in the house. Another one of our amazing supporters. This is Good Evening Horror Family. Good evening, Travis Brown. Thanks so much for being here, bud. I Heart Dogs is here. Says, hi, everyone. Good to see I Heart Dogs. Thanks so much for being here. There's Denova28, our newest patron. Thanks for being here, Denova. Do appreciate it. And I see Jinju's in the house. Says, hello, everyone. Are we ready to have our butts scared off? I know I'm ready to lose a few pounds. We're going to do our best. We've got some good selections tonight. Sarcasm's here. Good to see you. Sarcasm says, hello, everybody. Good to see you. And I see Angel Rivera is there. Says, what up, what up, Weekend Horror? Got my 150th episode of Pine Glass. Love the art. Thank you, Angel. I'm glad that you like that. Yep, those are pretty limited. So those are no longer available. I think I, I had them available for like two weeks after we did the 150th episode. So I'm glad that you like that. That artwork was really cool. Um, I had Josh Olson uh, uh, kind of conceive of something in the style of uh, the, the Rat Fink artwork. You know what I'm talking about, Aaron? Yeah, it's... um. I've noticed he does that really well. I can never remember the the name of the artist. My uh, cousin loved them when he was younger. I think he's still in. Uh, Ed Roth. Ed Roth. There you yeah. go. Yeah. So he does. He and I had him. What's it? I'm thinking of something just like something really quick, kind of like just like off the cuff, something kind of like Ed Roth style for the 150th episode. He came up with that cool with the skull and all the the crazy shit around it, and he I mean, he knocked it out like that. It was so fast. So I was really really impressed. Too stupid. To get right. one, I just completely spaced on it, and now I'm like, man, I know people, and I can't even get one. I am people, <laughs> and I can't even get one. <laughs> I'm people who knows people. <laughs> but thank you, Angel Rivera. I'm glad that you like that. Thank you so much. We do appreciate it. Let's see who else we got here. Oh, I Heart Dogs is back, back here from Team Street. Yep, uh, Team Skeptics got a pretty good stream going over there. Uh, it's pretty it's pretty funny stuff he's talking about. Charlie Welch is here, the only man on the internet you never make a bet with. Good to see you, Charlie. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight. I do appreciate it. Another one of our big longtime supporters. Tony Regime as well says hello, we can horror with the obligatory ghost. I do appreciate that, Tony. We can always use all the alternative energy we can get. And let's see, let's see. Rodan LS name is here. Gabba Gabba to you, sir. Good to see you, Rodan. Thanks for hanging out. Do appreciate it. And oh, McKinnon Mitchell says you literally grew a beard back in a couple weeks. I'm not jealous. <laughs> <laughs> it grows quick. It really does. I went from uh, when I initially quit my last uh, job. When it well, okay, it wouldn't no, it wasn't the last job. Is before that. when I worked for that convenience store chain, that soulless convenience store chain that I will not mention. When I worked for them, I wasn't allowed to shave, and so I had to shave. or wasn't allowed to to have anything. I wasn't allowed to grow any facial hair except for a mustache. But when I grew just a mustache out, I looked like a serial killer. So I can't, I can't just, I look like freaking like BTK, man. I can't grow I'm out. I'm just straight up super trooper because when I work security, like when I did loss prevention, they let you grow whatever as long as it's neat and clean. But when I work security, you couldn't let the mustache go below the edge of your lips. So I just yeah, had the this of your mouth, right. thick bush under my nose. <laughs> horrifying but i was like i don't want to look like i'm like 13 on the job so this is just gonna have to stand so i and because mine mine doesn't look good until it gets down until i get kind of handlebar so i was keeping it so for a while there i tried the mustache and it looks so bad i look like i straight up look like dennis raider and i was like i can't look like this anymore so when i man chew it and just braid it down <laughs> to your, your nipples so when i finally quit uh, when I finally left that job, I was like, I'd like, it, I'd been like two days I hadn't shaved yet. So I had kind of a five o'clock, I had a pretty solid five o'clock shadow going on. And I was like, you know what? I'm out of here. I'm done. I gave notice I was out. And then I left and I, I just stopped shaving. I just didn't touch it for like almost two years. I think I trimmed it on the sides, but all of this I let grow. So it took two years for it to get from like, you know, five o'clock shadow to like about chest length. 
because it was about here on me. I'd let it grow, you know, let it grow down. So it grows grows in quick. But I have to tame it because when it grows on the sides, it starts going out, and my head starts looking like a Dunkin' Donuts munchkin. So my neck and chin, on. like my grain, the grain in my hair is to the side. So if I'm not constantly combing it, I look like, you know, the guy out of the lighthouse, just that windswept <laughs> beard, just tilting <laughs> off to the side. And I finally got to the point where it's like, I'm just done with it. It's gone. I've got a picture somewhere around here where it was like a, maybe down a, like two inches. And so you you got to get it long enough it, so you can go ancient Chinese wisdom. <laughs> yeah, it just takes and it pulls itself down by gravity, but it just never got there. Oh, but McKinnon Mitchell has is, is no slouch because McKin McKinnon Mitchell's got the Errol Flynn thing going on, and he's got like I mean I I hate to like kind of man crush, but he could he could pull off a mustache like nobody's business. So he's got like the the, the I would say not even Errol Flynn because Errol Flynn's kind of good guy. McKinnon Mitchell's got kind of like an antihero thing going on because he's like he's got you know it's like that dark kind of swarthy look. So he's got like Inigo Montoya. He got like the Inigo Montoya thing going on, which is really impressive. <laughs> <laughs> when he does the interviews, I'm watching it, and like even the people he's friendly with, I think if I were the, on the other end of the computer, I'd be like, "Do I need a lawyer? Like this seems serious." <laughs> <laughs> well, good to see you, McKinnon Mitchell. Appreciate you hanging out with us tonight. And Charlie Wilkes says, "I'll draw you a damn shirt." Ah, Charlie, I'll be in touch. Oh, he's pretty good. He's I, legit. I, I, I've he's, heard uh, that got a is. system. Yeah, he's finally got a system to work on, too. It's low end, but, I mean, he finally joined the information age, so maybe nice. he can help us out. Congratulations, Charlie. <laughs> Welcome to the 2000s. <laughs> Gosh of Heckfire is here. It says, hello, you beautiful bipeds. Good to see you, Gosh of Heckfire. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, Rodent's name says, you still look like a serial killer. I appreciate that, Rodent. I really, really do. Mike the Honey yeah, Badger is in the house. serial killer. Says, hey man, it's Boom. Oh, hey, Boom. Good to see you. Boom is a friend from uh, from a gaming community that I'm a part of. Uh, so good to see you, Mike. Thanks for hanging out with us. Hope you enjoy the show. Let's see. Oh, it jumped on me. Oh, I hate it when StreamYard jumps on me. Travis Brown says, jail, try to get a porn stash. I, it, okay, it wasn't an attempt to get a porn stash. It's just that when it was growing out, it just, and I couldn't, you, you couldn't go past the corners of your mouth. So it was like nice and tight. And just the way my head, because I like to, I keep my head shaved. I was kind of like, I, I look like Dennis Rader. Like, if I just stand up straight and just stare at the camera, I look like straight up BTK. So I just, I couldn't shit. I, I just like, no, this ain't going to be The guy <laughs> down there, they're always like, he was such a quiet fellow. Denova <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, 28 says, do women still find the porn stash sexy? I hear they do. I do. And McKinnon Mitchell says, I'm not blushing. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Elizabeth Sylvester is here. Good to see you, Elizabeth. Another one of our longtime supporters says, "Hey, JL and Aaron, how are you guys? We are doing fantastic. Got a great show, uh, great show coming up for you." Tony Regime says, "Weak and horrid. You've got the perfect picture of Johnny O to put on a T-shirt. I do, right? I really, really do. And he should use that artwork. So I sent it to him. So he should use it. We 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 played around with the AI generated images, and the image it, it gave him Johnny O was freaking hilarious. <laughs> oh, it's good stuff." All right, so we got a bunch of stuff, but uh, welcome to our newest patron, Denova28. We do appreciate it, but we got some news that I want to run by you guys that I want that we're going to go through really quick. We got a bunch of stuff we want to cover before we get into tonight's selections. Um, first and foremost, the big news, like some of the big news that came out of Netflix, the Resident, the the new Resident Evil series got canceled after one season. And I my, can't say uh, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, yeah, I'm not surprised. So this is I, what I, I didn't even finish. Okay. 
I was going to say, I didn't even finish one episode. I got into it about three quarters of the way, you know, because sometimes it takes a little bit for something to pick up. Mm-hmm. And it just, it couldn't hook me enough to even drag me to the end of the episode. So I'm not going to. Maybe I'll this... mourn it down the road when I get drunk one night and get to episode three. But for now, I'm good. <laughs> See, this is where I think it failed. Um, you had, we okay, before the, the, the Netflix series came out, we had eight movies. Seven movies starring Mila Jovovich is a part of that continuity. And then we had one more movie, Welcome to Raccoon City. Okay? The first seven movies were undeniably action films. Those are action horror movies. That's what they were intended to be. They replicated the action elements of the game, but they kind of dropped the the kind of stealthy, move-around, quiet, uh, jump-scare stuff. They pretty much just went full-on action. Okay? Yeah, they were so we got... bowls, but they didn't suck ass. Right. So we have <laughs> we have seven movies that are action-based. Then we get Welcome to Raccoon City. And Welcome to Raccoon City was definitely made for the gamers. If you really loved the very first Resident Evil, you would like that movie, but you'd have to be a diehard fan. Otherwise, if you're not a diehard Resident Evil fan of the games, you wouldn't really dig this movie. So I was like, okay. And I had some problems with the casting, but that, that's neither here nor there. But when it comes down to it, we had we, that one was also heavy action. You got big explosions, lots of gun, lots of gunplay, blah blah blah, and... Then this Netflix series comes around. Now, ignore all of the animated Resident Evil stuff that's ever been made. The Netflix series comes around, and each episode is an hour. And I think, in my opinion, that's where it failed. Because they didn't want to just, like, sit on the action all day long, like the predecessors, like its predecessors did. They wanted to follow after the games, because they picked up from the game's continuity after Resident Evil 6. Um, after Wesker was dropped in the volcano, Wesker died. If, spoiler alert, that was years ago. I hope I didn't ruin that. So when it comes down oh, so when it comes out to it because they tried to expand each episode they had to like fill up an hours worth of time the show freaking dragged now if they had done 30 minutes at a time 30 minute installments i think they'd have been right on point i mean so they're if you're going to drop everything at once too because they weren't doing like hbo max did or sometimes hulu does because they pull from live tv where you're getting single episode installments because there are even certain ones I've seen on Netflix that pulled from Korea that were ahead and they still did one episode at a time. I think the half hour would have been the best idea, but honestly, if you're dropping it all at once, I mean, just condense it, get as much action every hour as you can, hit that cliffhanger right. at the end, and you're golden. Because Castlevania did, they did not like the first season, it's an animated series, but you know, been playing it since back in the NES days. And um, the first season wasn't that great. The second and third were amazing, but it had enough to bring me along. And it took, and it almost did one plot line during the first, I keep thinking it was six episodes on the first season. Enough plot line spread out just right, dropped it all at once to say, okay, I'll give season two a chance. This one didn't even, I was, you know, I didn't even say give episode two a chance. So um, it just... Yeah, I think it was just it a comedy. Feel. They were too long, too dragged out, and the non-linear storytelling was just more. Uh, it became more annoying than anything else. It felt else. Black Mirror is how right. the first episode felt from the get-go, and I'm like, yeah. that's not where I want to go with Resident Evil because I like you're talking about the animated series and stuff or the anime. They've got uh, that Resident Evil Infinite Darkness did the same thing as Castlevania, where there's very little in the first season. I'm waiting for season two. I mean, plus it's got Leon, and Leon's the most under-celebrated hero in Resident Evil. Guy's 
badass. Why is he not on every damn video game? <laughs> <laughs> so I yeah, guess he but, doesn't look good in a blue skirt, but shit. <laughs> I, think, I think ultimately we're we're not surprised, and uh, just the failure of that. And I see we have a lot of Resident Evil love in the live chat. Um, Denova says uh, Denova twenty eight is my favorite. It was Resident Evil four. I loved Resident Evil four. As a matter of fact, I love Resident Evil so four. One of my early film projects, I utilized the over the shoulder follow. Because I had a guy who was like, you know, running and gunning. And I used, I, I set it up, I, I tried to emulate putting the camera just over the shoulder so I could emulate that same effect. Um, I loved that. So I was like, this is amazing. We have to do this in a movie. So I tried, actually tried to pull it. And it was tough, but we managed to do it. Um, so was smart and how it leveled too, because right. it adjusted to you and it kept you challenged, but it never, you know, murdered you like Dark Souls. And they never replicated that. They, uh, like, it was smart. Yeah, just media-wide, like, not just games, not just shows, movies. They've had a bad habit of not replicating what worked for Resident Evil. It's kind of disappointing. Sir Chasm brings up a la Ash vs. Evil Dead, which condensed its content into 30-minute episodes, which worked perfectly for that with a combination of drama, combination of action, you know, and the suspense. It built it all into it, only needed 30 minutes to do it. That's where Resident Evil, the series, failed. They yeah, just tried to stretch had... that out. I had Bruce Campbell. Bruce Campbell gets shit in the bucket, oh, yeah. and I'd buy the bucket. I'm just saying, as long as it was on video. Travis Brown says, I love Resident Evil 2 on the N64. That was fan. Yep, Resident Evil 2 was fantastic. It's by far my favorite Resident Evil game was switching off between Claire and uh, Claire and um, and Leon. I, I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, I thought that was really, really cool. Diamond, dynamic gameplay. So, yep, yeah, but uh, there's a lot of love for Resident Evil, but not for this current series. So, bit of a bummer there. So the next couple of things, let us know down in the live chat, uh, or, or let us know in the comments below what you think about you know, the reasons why Netflix canceled the new Resident Evil series. Uh, most likely, everyone's got their own opinions. We'd love to hear what they are, so let us know down in the uh, comments or at weekendhorror.gmail.com. Hey, Jasperi is here. Good to see you, H. Jasperi. Thanks so much for hanging out with us tonight. Do appreciate it. Okay. All right. So I also came across this. Came across things. We love practical effects here at Weekend Horror. And in fact, I don't know a horror fan that doesn't prefer practical over CGI. And I came across two new trailers for movies that are coming out that I wanted to share with the audience because they're practical effects driven and they look amazing and they just look awesome. So, and I don't know if you watched these two yet. Uh, but, yeah, uh, I did. Sweet. If you recommended them, they I have some varying opinions as always. <laughs> so this first one is the trailer for They Crawl Beneath. And I love slimy, gloppy monster movies. So let's give this one a look. I like gloppy monster movies. <laughs> to be fair, this one looked to me like hand puppets from hell. but And I wasn't <laughs> impressed at first, but like it finished. I'm like... I'll give it a chance, you know, they're trying, they're smart about their execution, <laughs> but yeah, they're like, they keep showing them, and like, you don't see tail ends on them, so they're just like, Aah! I'm like, that's the same guy fighting himself. <laughs> Brilliant. So, I, because I love practical effects, I love, you know, gloppy monster movies, and just like, goofy shit, of course, oh, good, there's definitely some tremors, uh, some, some essence of tremors there, so... I wanted to show people that in case they hadn't heard about it. Uh, that's a fun one called They Crawl Beneath. Let us know what you think of the trailer down in the comments below or weekendhorrorgmail.com. Travis Brown says, Title is almost like they live beneath the ground. I am kicking ass and chewing gum and I'm all out of gum. <laughs> <laughs> Denova says, I think CGI is acceptable in small doses, except for like kaiju movies like Godzilla or Pacific Rim. Well, it's interesting that you should mention that because here's another trailer for a movie called The Lake, which is a Chinese Thai production which used totally 
I think in very like uh, I think ninety five percent is what they lauded practical effects. Enjoy this trailer, dude. <laughs> and yeah, that one actually. So when it started, I'm like, oh, another alligator movie, but it looks like they did the smart thing and. They used the creature as a device when something's very simple or something we're very used to, like the behavior of an alligator, crocodile, even a dinosaur. You're smart to use it as a device for the plot to revolve around, and it seems really similar to how they approached it with the host, where the monster wasn't the greatest struggle. It was between the family, so it seems like they're using it to kind of pivot the struggle for the town and the people in it around. And it's a really smart approach. I, I honestly am looking forward to that one. Normally, alligator creature features, I'm like, and they got my attention. Me watch this. <laughs> <laughs> they seriously got my attention. All of those, all of those wide shots where that thing is there is completely practical effects. They built a life size kai, like kaiju style monster for this. So yes, uh, Mike the Honey Badger and uh, McKinnon Mitchell both got it. Mike Honey, uh, the Honey Badger says, Godzilla meets Pacific Rim meets Jurassic Park. It's like, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, Jurassic Park meets Godzilla. Uh, Lake Placid meets Jurassic Park. So I'm loving the fact that they did this. It looks amazing, and I'm seriously looking forward to this one coming out. Uh, definitely let us know what you think of the trailer for The Lake down in the comments below at weekendhorror.gmail.com. I see the plot hole is lurking out there. Good to see a plot hole. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight. Let me see. Um, and I think I saw someone else. Did I see someone new coming in? No, no. I was, oh, someone said, oh, you want a real horror film? Oh, Jinju said, Kirk Cameron just announced a new movie. Ugh, gross. <laughs> gross. You give somebody oh, one sit hit sitcom, and then they just turn into a damn monster. <laughs> into a monster. <laughs> well, we got one more thing. We got uh, two more things to look at real quick. Uh, the, w w this one is a teaser, and of course, I just wanted to show it because it's freaking awesome. The new teaser for uh, that was just dropped on Hulu. October 7th. Nice, and there's actually, let me see if I can pull up the image over mine really quickly. Um, there is, they dropped within the last six days a, uh, an image of what she may look like. There's a, if you want to give them a little bit of detail while I figure out where Definitely. to Definitely. So, so Hulu is rebooting, uh, the Hellraiser franchise and the details on that have been sparse. So they, they've been really, really tight-lipped about what, uh, about, uh, what's going to be, or what, you know, essentially what the film is about or what the series is going to be about. So we do know that it's going to be more focused on the Clive Barker short story, the Hellbound Heart. So we know it's going to be more true to the book than the original movie was. We know that Clive Barker is, um, I think executive producing it. And it, we know that Jamie Clayton, actress Jamie Clayton is going to be portraying Pinhead or the, the, the Hell Priest, in this uh, particular film, so it's going to be a little bit. It's like I said, it's more true to the uh, more true to the short story, and it also stars Drew Starkey, Odessa Azon, Brendan Flynn, um, Afi um, Hens, and Goran Viznik. And Jamie Clayton, people should remember, might remember her from a Netflix series called Sense Eight, and she was also a designated survivor and uh, the Elward Generation Q. So she is a fantastic actress. Very very talented. Loved her in Sense Eight, and I cannot wait to see what she brings to this series. Um, yeah, that was the first thing that was announced when it dropped. And I think, Aaron, you have an image of what she looks like? Yeah, this is what they're, they're saying she's going to look like. Um, it's interesting because in the comics, which a lot of the comics are uh, based on the um, 
which for the listeners, I mean, it's very similar to what Pinhead had, except the abdominal area is more exposed and the breasts have a single strap covering the nipple. I mean, torture me, I, I probably won't complain. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they, um, in the comics, which is, like I said, are based a lot on Clyde Barker's works, mm-hmm. the, um, Kirsty Cotton actually eventually takes his place, uh, Pinhead's place, as a hell priest and becomes hell priest and it has a very dismal plot we don't even need to go into if you want to find out you know head out and read but i think it's interesting to do a female hellraiser or a female pinhead because it's really they kind of they never say it directly but sort of the deviancies of each person influence how they're punished and everything because it's their form of pleasure pushed to the point of pain but that one almost seems to be like ceremonial robe at this point. And there's a lot of lore behind it, so it'll be interesting to see if it's canon or if they take and pull like a Star Wars and you know kill thirty years worth of lore. But <laughs> I do. I think it's they're actually putting some effort in this time um, and not doing the thing that most usually it's producer, some director, some writers, but usually producer does where they overimpose their own vision on something so that they abandon originality in favor of almost complete independence and it's something so different they shouldn't even have acted onto it so mckinnon mitchell says still haven't seen a single hellraiser you need to get on that son good stuff really really good movie especially at least watch the first one the first one is fantastic there you can probably you can stop at three Watch the first one, the second one, and the third one with Terry Farrell because Terry Farrell was Jed Zia Dax. Terry Farrell is amazing. So you can watch the first three, um, maybe the fourth one if you want to get some prequel action going on but uh, to get some like backstory. But, you know, five through nine or five through ten, I think. I, five plus, just, you know, you don't need to watch them. Just go ahead and pick up the Hulu, the Hulu series when it comes out. Um, let me Anything see Clive else. Barker wasn't involved in, just, just walk right. away, man. Just walk away. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very curious. I cannot wait for it to come out. I know Doug Bradley has expressed his support for the production. Uh, he is very, 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 very intrigued by them casting. Uh, by the, he like pretty much the understanding was that a female, a female version or female uh, pinhead was going to be coming along. That it was, it was going to happen sooner or later. And he's really, really curious because he, because he loved Jamie in Sense Eight, and so he's really interested to see what uh, is going to come along. And because Jamie is uh, trans, it's going to be. It, it, he feels that that was even better because it because you know the whole the whole Hellraiser franchise has always been trans progressive. So I'm very very curious uh, whether you know, how they're going to uh, portray him. Here's what she brings to it. How she's going to make it her own because that's always the difficulty. Is Doug Bradley portrayed it so many times, and then when you have people trying to emulate Bradley instead of bringing their own power to it. That becomes problematic. So I say, Jamie, bring it. Your, you know, br- bring your own interpretation to what this is from the from the uh, the source material. I can't wait to oh, yeah. uh, to see what she brings. Radical, uh, basically radical transfiguration is part of the lore from the right. start. So this is like the idea of not only you know socially um, living out your identity and your identified gender but physically is like mild compared to the fact that basically they rearrange you into your own human like species and then set you loose on the world so <laughs> it's yeah it's well within the realm of uh the original works 
So definitely looking forward to that. Let us know if you're also looking forward to the new Hellraiser friend or the new Hellraiser series coming out on Hulu in October. Let us know down in the light, down in the, uh, the comments below or at weekendhorror@gmail.com. And the last thing I wanted to mention, wanted to bring up before we dive into into tonight's selections, is we got um, there were some there were some people who were kind of like lurking around Sean S. Cunningham's uh, social media stuff. So there are people that hunt around, see what they post, and follow them. And apparently. Sean S. Cunningham, the original director of Friday the 13th, may have hinted that something new is coming down the pipeline regarding Friday the 13th. Possibly a new film, maybe a series, we don't know. But it looks like Sean S. Cunningham has hinted that we may get new Friday the 13th uh, content uh, some maybe next year, don't know. That's All we know is that he hinted the possibility that, uh, that that's what they're interpreting it as, is that we may get some more. We may get more Friday the 13th, now that all the legal stuff has finally been settled. So we may see some more Friday the 13th come our way. Whether it involves Jason, we don't know, but the name is coming back, so possibly. So what do you think? Uh, after the reboot, after the 2012 reboot, or was it 2009? I don't even know anymore. I think I'm it was, to forget uh, that one oh for God, the most so long part. ago, but I think it was 2009. I arrow. Jason doesn't use missile weapons he's a straight up melee beast <laughs> <laughs> so do you think uh you think uh, after the, the the disastrous reboot uh it should be done or so, do you think there's a chance I, you know i generally side with original creators but at the same time i know when cunningham started this he picked the name before he picked the plot for the first movie so it's like all right he may go go for the almighty dollar but then again he's already established himself the first movie his cash grab got dropped in favor of Jason. Something new, something improved, something exciting got carried out. So, I mean, it's just like, does he wake up on the wrong side of the bed and we pay? Or, or <laughs> is he going to have, like, a good morning when he starts executing this project and it's, you know, going to be the new era in horror? But uh, either way, man, he's earned his, he's earned enough credit to give him a damn chance. Definitely. Well, I'm curious. Uh, definitely let us know what y'all think. Do we need more Friday the 13th? I think we always need more Friday the 13th. Denova28 says, if it ain't Kane Hodder, it ain't Jason. I, I, I tend to agree with you on that, bud. Thank you, Travis Brown. It was 2009 when the when the uh, the reboot came out. Ugh, gross. I was just so annoyed. I mean, I love Derek Mears. Derek Mears is by far one of my favorite uh, kind of stuntman monster actors. Uh, he was fucking phenomenal as Swamp Thing. That Swamp Thing series is how Swamp Thing is meant to be portrayed. And he was brilliant and then they fucking canceled it after a season i was pissed so i love Derek mears love your brings to it but unfortunately they were just retreading old ground it's not Derek mears's fault it was just they were retreading old ground they told the story before it was whatever and it was just boring so but travis brown says no more friday the 13th films oh what a shame so but hopefully hopefully we want it. Hopefully, we will, we will get some. That was Rodin the same. That was the problem with with the reboot. Is they tried to make Jason a sympathetic character, and I hope they don't ever try to do that again if they do happen to bring it back. So yeah, well, yeah. they tried to add more personality to him too. Like I said, the arrow kill when really he's just a a simple mechanism murder beast, and he functions by different understanding of physics than us because walls and doors are only a suggestion to Jason, but. He's still not going to aim something that he has to shoot shy of a spear. If he can sling it with his arm, that's the end of what he needs to do because he's going to find you anyway. So just keep uh, running. 
they'll still always, catch you. <laughs> always good for a month. I, you know, the epitome of Jason is, I mean, you can always go sleeping bag killer like this, but my favorite, the epitome of Jason Voorhees is, you shouldn't go outside. Fuck you! Opens the door. Fuck! And then behind the TV, <laughs> straight out of continuity. <laughs> that, that is Jason. That, that's some Kane. That was Kane Hodder in his first turn. When she opens the door. What? Funk! <laughs> and then get the fuck out of here. It just straight, like, slung her, slung her straight out of the movie. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Well, that's the thing about Jason, Friday the 13th, is it developed in the original arc. Yeah, you had some low points, but they were very aware of what they made. They were very aware of how everybody viewed it, and they ran with that. Even Jason X, as ridiculous as it was, still played on that enough to be fun, especially if you're watching as a group movie, like... Friday the 13th are always best when you got other people with you to, you know, laugh and if they're scared of a scream and everything. But then with the newest one, they just got hyper serious and it was just, yeah. we had come too far. <laughs> we know each other too well, Jason. <laughs> Turn back. <laughs> Turn back now. All right. Well, we hope you all enjoyed those, those little tidbits that came along down the horror pipeline. Hope you enjoyed the trailers. Let us know what you think of them down there in the comments below. Rodella's name says, Jason is a grizzly bear with a sharp object, a force of nature that you can't negotiate with. This is true. This is absolutely no. true. All right, but we got some movies. Like, uh, like uh, Alex often likes to tell us, we have movies to talk about because this is a horror movie podcast. And we have some, some, nice, some interesting selections to talk about. Um, so, Aaron, why don't you uh, kick us off? What do we have up first? We've got first up from September 5th, 2018, The Boat. And no, it's not a bad translation of Das Boot, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so The Boat, directed by Winston Azapardi, written by Joe Azapardi and Winston Azapardi, starring Joe Azapardi. Um, it is, so, obviously, it's a, a single-actor film. Um, the That being said, this is one of the few maybe i don't want to say few praises for it but they did a good job with with it as a single actor film um they kept you engaged throughout i'll give it that whereas a lot of them are just kind of they're just frankly boring because there's no interaction to develop the plot line and everything but um it was a very it basically so it's an it's a guy i guess i should give a quick description which is hard to do um but it's a, a gentleman as you if you've seen the trailer right there, it um, takes a small boat out, ends up finding a large boat in the mist, and ends up on said large boat. It's a sailboat and gets trapped there. And no matter what he tries to do, he can't find his way to land. Uh, the boat seemingly intentionally takes actions to keep him from getting noticed and everything, and then is intent on taking him on this journey. Um I think it was a really great setup that was very poorly executed because there are some films that are intentionally there is there is a logic there there is representation and symbolism mm -hmm. um and they're going someplace but it takes some time to decipher it stimulates conversation I mean some of them set the internet light this one however I think it suffered from contraindication where it engaged in so much of this that you're left wondering, is there really a message here or is this somebody that slapped together a script that's made right. to make you ponder, but then you're not pondering on anything substantive? Is it I, just garbage? 
Okay, so obviously the, the film got me at the start, and I and I dug it. It was like you know, lone sailor takes his boat out, going for the daily catch, and then in, you know a mist, this deep mist rolls in. All of a sudden, he encounters this abandoned sailboat, and then climbs aboard, and then ends up stranded on it, you know, and completely lost, and you know, no no way to, to you know no way to figure out anything. And then of course, supernatural events are taken over. So it I kept you know, because it's so minimalistic it's a guy on guy trapped on boat and it's the only and he's the only one there because you know so you you want to grasp as much as you can from the environment of it and so I kept my mind kept going to try and pick up little things to try and get a hint as to what was going on here and first and foremost is the name of the boat which is Aeolus so the Aeolus uh actually has multiple uh, connotations in Greek mythology so I was immediately I was attracted to that because uh, as was mentioned in the live chat by um, by Denova twenty eight, there's a, another movie called that came out before called Triangle that came out I think in 2012 if I remember correctly that starred Melissa George and that was a that's a time loop uh, film where the the schooner or I would say the yacht the the yacht that they the abandoned yacht they climb aboard um, is also called the Aeolus but. The connection in that one is that 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 Aeolus was the story of Aeolus as the son of Sisyphus, and which which reiterated the whole the whole concept of doing the same action over and over again and being stuck in a perpetual loop. And then we find out at the end of that film that she was in the loop of her afterlife is what it was. She was stuck constantly trying to get out of this loop, and that was essentially her afterlife, um, paying for the actions that she committed. I don't want to spoil too much out of that film, but when it comes when it came to this one. Uh, I was reminded of the Odyssey because one thing is like the very first book he picks up, uh, like when he's looking around, he's trying to figure out what was going and what happened in this in this cabin. There's clothes everywhere. There's there's obviously uh, evidence that someone was there, and there's a book called Millennium that was there. And so I picking up on those these little clues. This wasn't the same Aeolus as from uh, the Tale of Sisyphus. This is the Aeolus from the Tale of the Odyssey. And so Aeolus was the god of the winds, and was the, was a demi, it was kind of like a mini god. It was like a minor god. He was a god of the winds, and he lived upon a sailing on a floating island, an island that floated around that Odysseus was on for some time, called um, a I think it's uh, I can't remember the name of it, but so Odysseus meets this god. So I'm like, okay, I get it. And the fact that the boat is directed by the wind, it's like 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 literally the boat directs itself and sails itself. So. The boat is the island, and the wind directing it is obviously the is obviously the god. So, what I got from this, and it was this was, and I think I agree with you on this. They really, really buried, kind of buried the needle here because I had to really dig, like into the bag, only because I happened to know this stuff offhand. The symbolism that was here, that essentially the movie is a metaphor, the whole thing is a metaphor for our lack of control in the face of the, of the grander world. That whatever you want to, whatever you want to like say, that it's like the, the, you know, the elements of nature or, you know, whatever, however you want to put that, but there are greater forces out there and then we are at their mercy regardless of how in control we think we are. So that kind of takes me out a bit because I had to dig so deep in order to try and pull some meaning from this. But I will say this, in the saving grace of the film, I fucking loved seeing a protagonist that didn't panic and knew what he was doing. And, and because the, the, he epitomized being a sailor. And anybody who's in the live chat who has ever done military service, who's ever been in the Navy, or, or has ever, you know, like I said, military service, especially in the Navy, sailors don't panic. Because when you panic on, on the sea, you're, you're dead. So every problem he runs into, no matter how escalating it gets, he stops, 
he thinks and he tries to he tries to find the best solution for every time he runs into an issue. He never lets one get get the better of him. And he and he and he'll take time to stop and think. Which is what you need to do in these situations. I thought it was brilliantly done. I thought it was extremely well acted. I believe absolutely believable in that respect, not the supernatural elements, but Yes, this is exactly what this kind of person would do. And was one of the big saving graces of the film in itself. That and it's creepy as fuck. Atmospheric, out there alone in the ocean. Not to mention when he gets stranded in the water. You know, and you suddenly, you hear splashing around you. It's like, oh. <laughs> I think that's the only time he may have panicked. Um, in the ocean. <laughs> I'm not the only thing out here. So, see, that's the thing that that really got me i'm trying not to give away too much about the movie because it's within our five-year moratorium but it's hard to do because it's named aeolus um there are things that if you look for it in the movie you can tell something's off at the beginning because this this strand vessel is from valletta which is where he calls on the radio so he's near it um because it says aeolus valletta um but the rather than having in the grand scheme of the picture, rather than feeling like Aeolus or his island, the ship feels more like Charon's vessel. Oh, like because, okay. Yeah, you get when he first goes into the fog and he finds this boat, this feels very much like a lot of... Um, it, I mean, you see in movies all the time where you're making this entry into a mythical world. You're exiting our reality and entering another. Um, so he climbs on this boat, he comes out of it, and he starts to go through things, various events that some make sense, some don't. They still don't make sense to me why executed that way. Yeah, the the ship is trying to stop him from um, change from bringing others in and changing the path it's got him on, but. The fact that you encounter vessels, but never people, until you really get to the end, you start to see people again without giving away the end. It feels, it's definitely, it's an isolated journey, and it right. feels very much like he's transitioning into a completely different world. Not just through stuff within ours, because there's one point where, and it confuses the hell out of me, because we see water creeping up in the boat. Obviously, it's salt water. You know, he's on a salt water body, but he hits when he is stuck in the bathroom. He hits so, water that's so placid, you do not see that water in the ocean. And it's, you've got fresh water that comes up through the drain, and he tells the boat to hell with your fresh water, and it gets right back down the drain, and he's lost <laughs> it because he told it to go fuck itself. So it took away, right. which that's the first huge sign of the boat's consciousness. Um, but it, see, it feels like as he is, as certain things happen to him, he transitions from reality to reality of what seems like a freshwater ocean, even though when he tastes water later, it's salt water, just things like that. And that really was what killed it for me because it didn't seem to find any cohesion. And the fact that the ending, without giving it away, the ending betrays the way he acted at the beginning. It's not a loop. Not a perfect right. loop anyway. It's not even... If it is, it's at baby stages. Um, that, that's but why it just, I got the sense that, it's, that, that it is man's uh, lack of power in the face of grander forces. Whatever you would decide to interpret those forces as is that... You don't. If you don't have a respect, if you don't have like a an acknowledgement of the grander things out there, if you take them for granted for uh, as such, 
then you are at their mercy. And that's essentially what he was, is kind of at the mercy of this thing. Because the ship itself, steering itself, and of course, you know, flood, like, like flooding the way it wants, you know, with, you know, however. And then, of course, the, the scene where, 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 okay, there's a scene where it's, the ship is literally, you know, like, he's trapped in the bathroom, this ship steers itself into a storm. Deliberately. And it was like, okay, so there, there's something trying to be imposed upon this guy here. Yeah, and it's, see, and then I kind of, when it, damn, not giving away the endings really hard, but it almost <laughs> felt like it had a message that's like you're saying, it's so you can only control your actions, you cannot control the consequences. Um, if you try to fret over the consequences constantly, you're you're just going to frustrate yourself. And it does have that feeling, but it hints towards grander things in a way that I think betrays the the focus. It, in that case, it would be giving on him because it finds the knife with blood, the scissors with blood. Indications that other people have gone through shit on this boat. So it, it says to me that there's something bigger going on beyond him. Like. Right. Other people are going through through this and experiencing this, or the boat is just an asshole that kidnaps people <laughs> and hunts them down. You because when it starts chasing like, him, I'm just like, all right. Without, oh, yeah, yeah, especially after the dolphin scene when the when it's, yeah. it's like, oh come on, dude. <laughs> so, but uh, we don't want to give away too much about the film because yeah. it came out in 2018, so we do have a moratorium on spoilers. But the biggest thing I want to talk about this, and Jinju, I can't really address the Sisyphus thing without giving away too much. You'd have to watch the movie because we don't want to spoil it. We want to be able to take your own conclusions from this, knowing what you know the things we've talked about. But the big thing, the big issue on this one, and the thing that I walked away with is not a bad movie. It was was it wasn't it had some really enjoyable points. I loved the protagonist. It was it was well executed, and I love the cinematography. Filming in tight quarters of the boat makes things very very intimate, and I I really enjoyed that. The biggest issue that I have walking away was when you have a particular movie, and this is a first time director. It is first time, you know, first time writing, first time directing. It's his first venture out. Eh. And the biggest issue I have is that when you are, and I get, you know, the need to want to get the audience to invest, to ask questions, to get them thinking. But at what point does it become too abstract for abstractness sake? Is that if you, if you, if you, if you literally bury it so deep, you can only glean bits and pieces, then the audience ends up doing most of the work. And because they're doing most of the work to put all the pieces together, that can take them out of the journey in and of itself. So we disconnect from the uh, from the protagonist because we're not figuring things out at the same time the protagonist does. We're figuring them out either before or after he does, and we never actually meet up. So it divests our interest from a storytelling perspective. And I think ultimately that's what harms it, is because this thing just, it goes too ambiguous. And there is such a thing as too much ambiguity. Because, you know, because especially in a tale expected, but I think it's it's, it's um, made worse by the fact that we only have one pr- protagonist. We're not picking up, like, it's not like uh, other films that with their, with their ambiguous nature like The Ninth Gate, which I shit on all the time because of its last five minutes. But in that one, there was a lot of ambiguity, but we had multiple story threads. You know, we had the cult story thread, we had the house story thread, we had Johnny Depp's story thread. We're following all of these bits and pieces that allows us to kind of like, ah, we're following along the narrative with the pace of the movie, which is what made it so great until the last five minutes when the movie fucking sucked. But in this particular perspective, we're either behind the protagonist or we're ahead of the protagonist, and we never seem to be on the same page, which sucks, which which hurt, hurts it narratively speaking. 
So I think it was just a big, too ambiguous for its own good. Yeah, anytime you make a movie that's going to rely, rely heavily on symbology um, or, you know, like in this case, you're talking about history and mythology and stuff, you really need to stick to things that people know at the core. And you need to stick to your, your main message and tie everything into that. Um, so, you know, as far as symbolism, it's almost Jungian in approach, you know, the, the collective subconscious where everybody's going to get that, or at least from within a certain culture, everybody's going to get what that represents. And then you can take and lay in threads as you go along to lead people, if you're really good, to like go on the internet afterwards and keep asking questions and keep the conversation going and stuff like that. But you do have to answer a certain amount of questions at first, very clearly to get that to keep going. Symbolism. <laughs> <laughs> I think you. What's the symbology there? I think the word you're looking for is symbolism. What is the symbolism? symbolism. <laughs> I, I, I had a feeling so. I didn't want to do it. Uh, I didn't want to do it. I knew someone was going to call it in the live chat. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's but it's uh, leave me alone. It's applicable, you bastard. <laughs> but uh, the uh. You really got to you got to be able to bring everybody at least close to the main point. I mean like mother like once you oh, clue yeah. into what that movie's about everything starts. It's like, "Oh my god, this represents that and this represents that." And if you go through on a second viewing, if you go into the first blind and whether you get it during or somebody tells you after and you go into it a second time, it's, it's you know, "Oh, this is this means that and this is what's happening here." And I don't think on a second viewing this movie is going to reveal any more than it did on the first. Like, even, you know, the research, because I looked up Aeolus and kind of thought about Geron, and looking at stuff beyond that, I don't I don't think it brought anything more to the movie. So it's, you know, it's you kind actually, of standalone confusion. You brought up Mother and another richly ambiguous film, unless you unless you, you pick up on what it's put, pick up what uh, Aronofsky was putting down there. And I picked it up immediately watching this. I was like, "Oh, I get what he's saying here. Okay, I get it." I, like that, but you just—this is one of the greatest moments in weekend horror history. And anybody who's recently picked up the show, if you've heard this past episode when it was me, Eugene, and uh, Alex, and Alex had watched Mother, and and he was like, "The movie is so confusing." It's like, "Oh, dude, dude, Javier Bardem is God." And Jennifer Lawrence is Mother Nature, and the house is the Earth, and the humans that attack and like tear everything down and burn everything down, and like that's humanity. So it's basically, and then it all starts again. It's basically the the, the cycle of birth and rebirth that God does with, and the complete failure of humanity and the disrespect of Mother Earth. And he was like, and he was silent for like five seconds as it all kind of coalesced into one deal. And he was like, oh my. Oh, <laughs> he had to, so he actually had to step away from the show for a minute. Trying to, I love it when it coalesces like that. It's kind of like man. It's kind of like uh, the movie Mandy. Mandy is deep in the Greek mythology uh, symbolism there, uh, and, and like, and I love that's a diatribe and go on a later time. That's why somebody, I think it was Rodent, made the last made the joke. Um, somebody made the joke. It's time for the the JL Greek mythology lesson. Uh, but, uh, but I absolutely love uh, I absolutely love uh, Mandy for its deep, rich symbolism that Panos Cosmatos was bringing across on that one. So, lot yeah, of but it also like even if you didn't get anything, it was just such a acid trip of a gore laden right. murder fest that it was like <laughs> I'm good. I'll watch it again. <laughs> my shirt. 
You ripped my shirt. <laughs> oh. Do you know when he wrote that? He's like, we need somebody to absolutely trip balls and go out of his mind murdering people. What's Nick Cage doing lately? <laughs> <laughs> this is the perfect movie for Cage Rage. But yeah, that that symbolism is good as long as the as long as the audience can keep along with the protagonist and stay on the same page. It allows us to invest in what the in the protagonist's journey and get what they're going through and really internalize the experience. Um, other than that, I think it was just it you know because it was so ambiguous, it just made that tough. And unless you have that that going in that that knowledge of Greek mythology, if you have that knowledge of, of being of you know like I'll say that sailing experience, if you're familiar with boats and familiar how dangerous solo sailing can be. It's, you know, unless you're very specifically invested in certain areas in your real life, it'd be really hard to identify this one. But nonetheless, it's a decent effort from a first-time director. I look forward to seeing what he's got coming up in the future. Yeah, and then just doing it with the limited, he obviously had some limited resources. And he did right. pretty well with them for what it was. But uh, am I right? And is it Charon or is JL right? And then say, oh, let's, you can go ahead and let us know. Do you think the sailor is dead? You know, shoot us a comment, drop it in the live chat, let us know at weekendhorror at gmail.com, or if you want to, we're trying to build the following on Discord. We can do a little more live conversation. You can head over there and drop your answer. But awesome. with that, we all know I'm right. Let's, <laughs> let, let's hit the next movie. What have we got, JL? All right, for this next one. Released September 7th, 2018, we have The Nun. Let's check out this trailer that we almost checked out previously, but we're going to check out this time. All right. So we have The Nun, directed by Corin Hardy, story by James Wan, Gary Dauberman, screenplay by Gary Dauberman, starring Damien Bashir, Teza Farmiga, and of course Jonas Bloquet. And uh, I think it was, uh, yes, Bonnie Ahrens as uh, Valak, a.k.a. The Nun. So the film itself follows, it's set in the Conjuring universe as a prequel to all the other films. And the plot follows a Roman Catholic priest and a nun in her novitiate as they uncover an unholy secret in 1952 Romania. Um, and then, of course, Valak was initially introduced in The Conjuring 2, and then they made this prequel to kind of fill out the backstory of that, and uh, I guess trying to eventually bring it all together in The Conjuring universe is how Valak plays into all of this. Um, ha. Huh. So, here's the biggest, okay, the biggest issue on this one, and uh, I see we already have some, some, di or I said some divisive uh, commentary in the live chat there, and it was, Denova 20 says, uh, oh, it was not Denova, it was, uh, Sir Cab says, hands down the best film in the Conjuring universe, and says, I'll fight over that, and then, of course, um, Travis Brown says, this is when people were getting tired of the Conjuring universe. So, the biggest issue with this one is at this point being the fifth film in the conjuring universe the film in and of itself obviously we're getting they're, they're starting to uh kind of rest their laurels on the formula on the conjuring formula and like i said the jump scares are at this point are, are being completely telegraphed we know that they're coming they lose their kind of jumpiness and the, you know it's kind of like from this point it's, they're almost like just exposition. Get us through the next jump scare so we can at least get to some storytelling, get to some character development, they actually get to some decent acting. The big thing on this one is that a really, really, really talented cast of actors. Damien Bashir is fantastic. Taysa Farmiga is fantastic. I've loved, loved her since American Horror Story, um, since, uh, since Murder House. Um, so we got a very talented cast. Not to mention uh, Bonnie as, the, as, the, uh, as Valak, as the nun. 
And I think she's phenomenal. She makes a great monster. Uh, but that's where kind of the, the breakdown takes place, is that half of your movie is functionally attempting to just jump scare the audience at all times. So all of your cinematography, your lighting, your sound, which is where they telegraph it, um, all comes to just trying to elicit a scare. And the rest of it all sits upon the performances of the actors in and of themselves. And with some okay dialogue, better dialogue than has been exhibited before, really, really strong performances, that was the only thing that kept me in my seat. But at this point in the game, the movie's very disjointed because I this one actually kind of like annoyed me more than some of the other films did because it was so good in one area which was the acting and the performances and delivery and basically setting all the exposition was really, really good. But everything technical about the film was designed solely to try and elicit a jump scare, which I, which, and they're all telegraphed. So I'm kind of like, uh, so I'm constantly in and out and in and out. And that was more obnoxious than I found any of the other Conjuring films, at least because the other ones at least was just, let's just go jump scares. Fuck the performances. Let's just do this. You know, we got, we got Patrick Wilson and we got, uh, um, uh, Vera Farmiga let's just go ahead and go with them playing Ed and Lorraine Warren and let's just go jump scares all the time at least this one made an effort but that seemed to come out even worse in my opinion very very disjointed production yeah it I, you almost want to call it formulaic because of the fact that it relied on his jump scares and it was so similar to the approach for the other films but even when you read about it, like uh, Corey, yeah, Corey Hardy, I started to say hard. And Corey Hardy, reading articles and stuff, he was passionate about it. They went to Romania. They found good locations. They set up internal sets that they needed because obviously some of this didn't exist beforehand. But it feels like they t took the elements mm -hmm. of what you would call formulaic and just tried to almost rearrange them to get something different. And I think their biggest error was misunderstanding that, yes, they're in the Conjuring universe. But now you're shifting from a haunted house story to a demonic slash religious entity story, and you have to not only change, I think you have to up your game. Right. Um, because you're dealing with more dangerous beings. You're dealing with a struggle on a greater scale. This is God versus the devil. This is the fate of all the world, not just one house. Um, and to the largest degree, they failed to do that. They failed to portray that. I didn't, I wasn't the, the worried higher about states. this. Yeah, right. wasn't worried about this demon escaping and reaping hell on the world. You know, it was just, I mean, like you said, you know, the Valak is scary. The visage in the beginning, the way it was used, it was hinted at and stuff, was amazing. But it's lost that scare because they just threw it at you throughout this movie. Um, and it was just, you didn't, I, at least I didn't feel the tie between the events that were executing and the scares that happened. Um just it didn't have a deep enough feeling to be a religious horror because there needs to be it needs to be tied to even though i was primarily raised non-christian because we discussed that the fact that i when i was a teenager i became pagan so things that are more occult tend to appeal more to my deeper beliefs and fears whereas you know you later converted, but you were raised Christian. Those hit you more. Even despite that, I like movies that are in the genre when they tie it to, you know, biblical aspects or historic miracles, something underlying it all that drives it. And this just does not have that. It's just a, a pissed bitch in the basement trying to get out. <laughs> 
Joshua Leapers, I do kind of wonder why there aren't more evil priests in movies. It's all about the nuns. Nuns themselves, I think, have always been interpreted as scary. I mean, I've been scared of nuns ever since the Blues Brothers. Um, joke for anybody who's seen that. You get it. I think you get it. But I think what it is is that it's the, from a storytelling perspective, from a narrative perspective, it's about the reason nuns can be uh, portrayed as so scary is because of obviously the parochial kind of outfit, the, the black and white, the very... What they exude is a very, as a very yay or nay kind of look at the world. That they themselves, they're, they're very absolutist in their appearance, and that they essentially evoke uh, the idea of the woman who has completely eschewed all of her femininity. That there is no, that, well, and that's something that you look at, and that's why you know, people joke they call them penguins, stuff like that, because of the black and white, because they essentially kind of, they're kind of covering themselves up. You know, they, this idea that they're that they're married to Jesus. Um, that's kind of to some people that can that just that can be creepy. Just the very notion of a woman who's completely eschewed everything about you know that makes her uh, a woman and closeted herself away from the world, married to uh, married to Jesus or married to their to their religious ideology. That in itself kind of makes them creepy because priests interact so directly with the public from the pulpit, and they're the ones giving the sermons of the, that they're they have a much more kind of personable feel, which is why it's tougher to make evil priests. Unless you're going in a particular direction, but with nuns, because you know they're at the nunnery, they are they're in the convent, they're cloistered away. You know, you kind of hear about them, but you never see them. It can make them a little, kind of a little un, un uh, or disconcerting in their in the we when we're suddenly when they're thrown in our face like that. So ultimately, you know, the one thing that that kind of saved the film a little bit was the direction of Corin Hardy, because Corin Hardy is only directed one movie before this, and that was The Hollow, which I really enjoyed. Because Corn Hardy got his start as a monster maker, um, he started doing like mo like special effects and monster making. I think when he was like twelve, and started out by making by shooting Super Eight films, and so eventually built himself up and got you know and uh, eventually directed The Hollow, which was a really really decent uh, 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 British Irish film, which is about uh, fey monsters in the woods. And if you get an opportunity to check that out, I strongly recommend it because the designs that were fantastic. And you can see a lot of Corin Hardy's vision translate over to this one, which is why I think it, it, it works in that respect. Because you have people dealing with real practical stuff that's really, really creepy. But then, of course, it's running. It, it's Corin Hardy's vision running on the Conjuring formula. And that is where it's problematic. And I have to agree with Aaron Reese on that, is that the stakes are just never there. You know, is that, yeah, uh, we get like The Conjuring. It's about a the family in the house. The Conjuring too, about the family in the house. You know, Devil Made Me Do It. It was about a particular murder case. We have all these, the and the entire Annabelle franchise. All of it. But Valak is supposed to be this driving demonic force behind everything. And it's never, it's just, you know, my personal opinion is just another freaking ghost. Just a ghost with an attitude, you know. And that was the, the and from what I understand in the production of this film, that they were besieged with reshoots. Which is always concerning is that when the film is close to close to you know, when they're about to go into post or when they're deep in post and then all of a sudden they got to go back and recut things that is problematic and so that's always a sign that things did not go right the first time around they got to go back and redo stuff or they got to you know for some reason to try and and what I'm thinking was this it was this and this is only speculation do not I'm not citing this from a source this is just from my experience of watching movies for as long as I have. Corin Hardy didn't, I speculate that Corin Hardy didn't initially follow the Conjuring formula and that he followed more of his vision. And what he delivered was a more Corin Hardy version of the nun. 
but the higher-ups demanded reshoots in order to insert more jump scares to kind of follow the conjuring formula. This is what we're going for. You didn't deliver what we're going for, so we need to go back and reshoot stuff in order to maximize the, the jump scare effect because that's what people want. And I think that and that is why it feel it also feels so disjointed is because some of those jump scares feel very, very forced. They're so obviously telegraphed. It's so obvious like, oh, okay, jump scare's coming. Three, two, one. Back, you know, can we get back to, to, to the movie, please? And the reason for that is because I think they, the higher-ups, I think, came in and said, nope, we need to do this, we need to you know, play this up for a scare, play this up for a scare. They essentially did what Warner Brothers did to Suicide Squad, to Suicide Squad when it was so dark and it was so gritty. It was like, no, nah, Marvel, Marvel does the comedy. We need more funny moments. And they go back and they start reshooting, started putting in funny moments, and they completely wrecked the fucking movie. So I think this kind of, I, I speculate that that is what happened here. Yeah, well, like I said, you need, if you're dealing with a movie of this nature, you need a kind of continuous feeling or continuous plot, a driver that's under everything. And the fact that they did reshoot scares me simply because whether it was because it was interfered with by product, uh, the producers or things just didn't execute right, they did not have a starting vision. You had great people. You had great locations, but the seed of it, was corrupted to go biblical on this but um it uh <laughs> whether that was the original case or it was caused later by interference it it kills the flow it kills the feeling and um right they going into this he had the set blessed by a greek orthodox priest there are tales of teza farmiga getting legitimately scared on set usually when you got things going like that you've got a a sort of feeling going for everybody that's on set that's producing and know where it's going. If you reshoot everything, um, you just shoot that to shit because you're right. you're pulling out bits and pieces and redoing them, and it's just not part of the whole. Um, and especially for something like this, I don't think it works out unless you have terrible curse movie like The Exorcist where people are nearly dying, <laughs> and then you have to go back and redo stuff like that. That can be interesting, but this one, for the most part, from what I know, mundane. And then you turn down a mundane product. Yeah. All right. But my, so my question is this, given the conjuring formula, I want to ask the audience, given the conjuring formula, they're always bang, banging up for the jump scare. And some, some are solid. Some, some kind of catches off guard. Some don't. I'm very curious. For those who are really familiar with the conjuring universe and have seen all the movies, um, what was your favorite conjuring jump scare? Was there one here in the movie, the nun? Or is there one in another one of the Conjuring films? Any of the Annabelle films? That yeah, They're all part of that big universe that they've created. Uh, do you have a favorite Conjuring jump scare? I, let us know down in the live chat or, of course, in the comments or at weekendhorrorgmail.com. I see uh, uh, Extra J is in the house. Good to see you, Extra J, who's popped in. Thank you for hanging out with us. And I see Skumacat as well. It says, yo, good to see you, Skumacat. Thanks so much for hanging out. Um, honestly, I have to say the one Conjuring jump scare that got me and it was in the first Conjuring film, was uh, Lily was Lily Taylor on the steps of the go, steps going into the basement. And they the misdirection that they had going towards the bottom where all the darkness was, and then all of a sudden the hands came out. That one actually, that, that actually got me. I'll admit, because I was so distracted by her, she was so focused that I became focused on her, looking down into the darkness of what was going on, and then all of a sudden... And then the whole, like, you know, clapping coming from the darkness. And all of a sudden, then right next to her. 
I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> that one kind of caught me off guard. But that's the only one that's really hit because it was so well, so well shot, so well performed. See, I can't even think of any singular jump scares. The biggest thing that jumps out at me is the Crooked Man, which I think it was great. The visual on him was amazing. Um, and they're talking about giving him his own movie. It's a TBA. Um, but I've seen what they want to make him look like, and they just took it all away. And I'm like, just should have stuck with the original. Yeah, go with, you know, you go with what works on a crappy two. formula, but then you don't stick with a scary as hell villain. What's your problem? That was Conjuring 2, right? <laughs> the, mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And the, the whole, like, the twisted, you know, and I love that the hat down with the eyes come through. Uh-huh. I, I did like it. It was a very cool design. Uh, so definitely Baba let us know. Duke level two. <laughs> <laughs> Denova says mine was the painting scene with where the where Valak came at her. That was in the and that was also Conjuring too, when there was the painting and then going back and forth and you know it was like when she was turning mm-hmm. the lights off and it was obviously there turning the lights off and it was the painting. Yeah, <laughs> that was decently set up. I was decently shot. I will I will give it that. Um, they, they 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 do some good setups, but the problem is we get so used to them. That we automatically begin to see, we say, "Oh, we see what they're setting up." We can see a telegraph from a mile away, so it, it's yeah, not it's, something that can last long. It doesn't have any longevity to it. Well, and it needs to feed the bigger fear in the movie. And if you're one way you can take and you approach it is they almost feel cheap. You've done so many jump scares, and then you break the rule on it. Like anytime you can set up a rule in horror and break it in a way that feeds the plot and the fear, you've done right. But when it's just jump scare, jump scare, jump scare, jump right. scare, movie's over. I'm gonna, no, I'm not watching yeah. that again. Unless JL oh. makes me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Aaron, take us into our third one tonight. I, I kind of, I, I dig this one. I've been waiting to hear uh, what you think. I've of got it. mixed feelings on this one. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's from September 7th, 2018, Hostile. Let's uh, watch the trailer and see if it... Okay, so it's written and directed by Matthew Turi and starring Gregory Fatusi and Brittany Ashworth. Um, it is a post-apocalyptic film on one timeline, but it also has a flashback, interspersed flashback style that goes back to modern day. Um, and it's essentially the main character. She drives off the road and is stuck out at night with creatures that thrive at night and that generally want to kill humans. And during this, she's flashing back to events that happened before the apocalypse um, and sort of showing what is driving her through this night to do the things that she does. Um, I've got, again, I've got mixed feelings about this one there. I'll hear your take because some of it has to do with knowing what goes into making a movie um, on a limited budget and a small scale. And you've got far more experience on that than I do. So ultimately, what I got from this one, obviously, it's a little bit of a, a smaller budget film because I mean, not a lot to go as far as post-apocalypse goes. You choose the right area, and uh, you choose the right area, and uh, you know, a little bit of set uh, set dressing, and of course, the majority of the film takes place at night while she is fighting against the the, the creature uh, before it comes to its eventual twist of a twist of an ending. Um, and those are pretty easy to pull off with a, with a small budget. All you need is a pretty, all you need, like I said, from you saw in the tra- from what you saw in the trailer, the majority of the film is shot in the desert, shot at night. That means we don't have to show a whole lot of stuff. If you want to convey post-apocalypse, it's pretty much about setting your your occasional like you know trashed out car, some abandoned places, 
and that's fairly easy to do because you, you just have to find the right location that already exists and you can just turn that into a post-apocalyptic wasteland um the big thing on this one of course is you know where the meat of the film is is in the flashbacks so remember the events leading up to the apocalypse and uh, without spoiling too much on this the whole film in and of itself doesn't really sit because of the meat of those flashbacks. I don't think the entire film sits. It is post-apocalypse, but it doesn't rest uh, all of its weight on the post-apocalypse. That the post-apocalypse, the post-apocalypse or post-apocalyptic wasteland is typically in in films a character in and of itself. It's overcoming that that essentially is a character along with all the along with the rest of the cast. It's what does the environment provide? What does it take away from you? How harsh does it become? What are the dangers? What are the you know what are the the things that we have to contend with out there in the new kind of environs that we are in. And that really didn't play in this. This is, and I thought that was kind of an, an interesting take. This one was, uh, this movie essentially was about internalizing the apocalypse, not by what is left, but by what we lost. And do we have what it takes to, to go on, to, to keep persisting on. So this is very much a human tale just a personal experience amidst the set, the backgrounded by the apocalypse, and how we look back at the decisions that we've made, and we look at where we are today. So you know, essentially, we all do this every single day. We look at where we are today, and then we juxtapose where we're at and the things that we believe and the things that we feel, and then we we constantly look back at the past. And we say, how did I get from there to here? What fundamentally changed? And you could say, well, hell, it's post-apocalypse. Something happened that destroyed civilization. But that's not it. And we realize that it that just because you strip away the environment, just because you strip away all the safeties of civilization, none of that, all of that is tertiary, tertiary to the human experience. And that it's our journey regardless of the environment. And that we realize that we have to internalize that amidst the backdrop of this, you know, rampant devastation. Of course, these nasty, disgusting little monsters or these big-ass monsters that are running around. Um, that's what I found. It found to be more, de definitely more personal. And I liked her performance. That's another kind of single person, uh, person trapped in a vehicle, fighting off monsters, you know, in contact with the people via radio. Um, and, of course, the relationship, you know, her flashing back to the relationship she had with uh, the, the, man of her, the man who swept her off her feet and ultimately, you know, where that relationship goes, and of course, the beginning of the end. So I dug it as a minimalistic experience, kind of a minimalistic look at a particularly extreme scenario, but it didn't focus on the post-apocalypse, which was nice. It focused on her, and her experience, and her internalization, and her constantly going through this battle. What, do, what am I doing? Like, why do I keep going and how sometimes we even ask ourselves why we keep going, but we know why we keep going, you know? And sometimes we don't want to admit it to ourselves, but we do. And her story is very easy to kind of like invest into. And I, I dug this one. It doesn't feel, it, it was a horror movie, but it has all those elements of a drama, you know? Yeah, it, um, it, so they could have made the mistake of trying to de deeply define this post-apocalypse. It would cost money. It would have taken time, and that would have taken away from where they were driving with this, because it's like you said, it's it's about carrying on the core of who you were into what you are now, and it doesn't try to even go into this flip moment where the apocalypse really begins. It hints, but it doesn't go, it doesn't play this out um, in any depth. And I think that's a good thing, because so often they take this 
approach of well this if they do show what a person was before was like before the apocalypse they were this person who had these flaws who went through these experiences and then the apocalypse happens and now they're this hardcore badass who never smiles or never laughs or this or that just completely changed and it shows that she has changed but some of that's actually from before she met him. She's kind of got this callus up to the world around her, and she had that before she met him because of what she was going through. Um, she let that down when she was with him. Then she lost him when the apocalypse happened. Um, I don't think that's giving anything away because obviously she doesn't speak to him, and she, yeah. she values the memories of him as she plays this out. But it's about you know how she addresses the outside world, versus what she's got going on inside which is something we all experience because everybody thinks they know who we are nobody knows who you are because they're not sitting in your brain every minute of your life knowing that like you're this giant web of insecurity surrounded by this (laughs) shell of humor oh i'm sorry did i get a little too deep there but (laughs) i i really really dug the because she herself feels guilty Throughout the, throughout the story, there's a, there's a strong level of guilt there because she recognizes that the problems that she had before the apocalypse, the issues that she had with other people, that the issues that she had with the guy who fell madly in love with her, you know, regardless of her failings, he didn't care, you know, because I think you know, cause she was a, uh, a recovering addict and all of these things about her that she considers her, she considers herself to be lost and broken. This guy comes across her and falls madly in love with her. It's like, you are amazing and you have, you're everything I've been looking for. And he doesn't care about all of that shit, but she can't get out of her own way. And then she realizes that likely the reason that she survived to this point is because of who she was. But it's left us to internalize. Yeah, she's a hard ass. She has a callus up to the world. She's got her walls up big time. She doesn't really trust anybody. She's had these experiences pre-apocalypse that essentially have hardened her to the point that she has been able to survive in the post-apocalypse. She's able to make the hard decisions. She's able to do things that other people would that would would, uh, would literally wilt you know, the certain uh, circumstances that she's uh, placed under. But she keeps fighting and she goes, because that's what she does. That's what the world turned her into before the apocalypse. But then she realized that that hardness is the reason she lost everything, why she had no friends, why she lost the man that she loves, why she, you know, all of these things that drove, all the, the, her strength, that which made her strong, drove everyone away. And now here she sits in the post-apocalypse, the strong able to survive, and she still has nobody. So she's forced to ask herself, what the fuck is the point? If you have to be this way to survive, but you can't have anyone to make life meaningful, to sur- you know, when you survive, then why would you want to? And she's constantly flitting between this dichotomy, pushing on for the sake of pushing on, or not pushing on anymore. And she sits on, and like like I think everybody in the situation would be, she sits on the edge on the edge of a knife, and then of course thrust into this extreme situation with the monster that comes out at night, with the monsters that plague the night, uh, played f- really really well by Javier Botet who is an amazing Spanish actor um, who's portrayed a lot of monsters. Uh, one of my favorites was he was the the zombie creature thing in uh, Wreck. So he's played a bunch of really, really uh, interesting uh, baddies. If I remember correctly, because um, he has Marfan Syndrome. And he, the Reaper is what they called it in this, in this film. But his Marfan Syndrome allows him to portray really, really scary stuff. He was the hobo creature in It. He was uh, the mummy in the, the Tom Cruise mummy film. 
Uh, he was the crooked man in uh, The Conjuring 2. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, Javier Botet is an amazing actor. And, he, of course, he plays this monster very, very effectively. Um, but I liked it that it was more personal. It was very interesting. Set across a very... A, a well-done backdrop. And if anybody, if any burgeoning filmmakers out there wanted to do a post-apocalypse, it's actually quite simple. And I think this movie showcases how easy it can be. There are plenty of places out there that are run down, that are desolate, that really don't have much. And the only difficulty comes in just moving the production to these locations. Because then you just got to worry about power and you got to worry about uh, your infrastructure, your, your, the kind of infrastructure you bring with you. But as long as there's somewhere nearby you can tap, you're in good shape. And so desolate highways, the desert, nighttime, burned out cars. These various things are scattered around that you could just grab and just throw down and say, boom, here's our playground. Here's our little diorama. Let's play around in it. You know, with a few little kind of CG things in there. And then juxtaposing that versus the, the world that we had lost, you know, which really emphasized that. I really, really, I, I dug it. Now you said you had mixed feelings on it. I personally dug this one because it, it, it did, it did something different with uh, the, with the background. Yeah, the thing that that bugged me is without giving away the ending, I feel like it it tried to go for an epic ending that was outside of her, rather than going for a, a personal victory that she had been building towards. Because the whole thing is, she she's got a, a more than healthy amount of self loathing going throughout the entire thing. Then she meets him, and she starts to love herself to a degree because he loves her. Um, and then even once she loses him, that continues on, and that's part of the reason she fights is that she wants to preserve this person he loved. She carries that uh, with her the entire time, and I think it would have done better on the personal victory rather than taking the route they did. Um, beyond that, though, I think they, they did a great job with what they were working with and the budget they were on because, like you said, you know, it's just getting there. The flashback scenes are all places that exist. They may need rearranging, decorating, and everything, but you're not building anything from scratch. The stuff that is post-apocalypse, you're either shooting stuff that it exists in our world, and like you said, you just got to get there, like the, mm-hmm. the flash of the ship in the desert and everything. But then they bring everything to a single-person internal struggle in this one smaller area and it's much much more manageable they've taken they've worked in the desert with a blank slate that's that fits the the plot perfectly the end of the world it looks like the end of the world there's nothing there um and all of it they've done all of it intelligently and it doesn't feel like they're just skimping because you get those movies where they're like you know the I don't even know how to define it, but they're like, this will do. <laughs> it does a really like good it, job at, at uh, because being out in the open desert, you see how open the open kind of wasteland that she's, that she's running through, but taking this giant open environment, which there's no cover and everything is exposed and taking that environment and turning it, turning the shoot into a very claustrophobic and very, and t- very intimate shoot because she's winds up being trapped in the vehicle. And so she's trying to ward thing, you know, keep things out while she's stuck in this thing and trying to protect herself until daylight can come. And so I dug that. It's like, it was like, there's all this open space out there, but she can't go anywhere. She's on an island in the middle of the ocean and stuck there, you know, and forced to, and, you know, and, and then we're forced. And then while you're stuck there waiting, waiting for someone to come and save you, which is kind of like parallels what was going on in her previous life, where she was just kind of drifting through, hard-nosed to everything, is in essence waiting for someone someone to come along and save her. 
She's repeating the same cycle. Even in the... Humanity is destroyed. Civilization is gone. We're still doing the same shit over and over and over again. And I loved that aspect of it. Even though I agree with you, I think the end... I don't want to spoil it. The ending, I can see where you're going with that. I do. Because um, it builds to a point and... Uh, but, uh, I love that. He's like, no matter how, the, the essence that no matter how much shit changes, it really stays the same. Yeah. It's she, like in her old life, she couldn't ask for help. Well, she literally couldn't ask for help. And then when she does, they turn her away and you know, she's gone through that. The way she talks about, you know, her family, she doesn't give much details, but you know that they weren't a help to it and everything. So she gets a situation parallel to where she was before, where she's beaten up and, She's on the verge of death and everything, and she doesn't have the savior with her, but he spent enough time with him, and he cared enough about her, and she cared enough about what he wanted to carry it forward, and is that going to be strong enough to drive her through to daylight? Because we've all had that time where we're just like, wishing the damn sun would come up because something shitty's going on, <laughs> and it, and it takes forever, <laughs> and to try to do that for, for survival you know, is just... It's, horrific right but all right the thing we want to ask you what is your favorite single person horror let us know at weekendhorror at gmail.com in the comments or in the live chat or you now like i said i'm gonna start trying to drive everybody to the discord so i can talk with them because i'm bored during the day <laughs> <laughs> i have to admit single person horror is always really really cool because it allows us to internalize more with the or to internalize the experience of the protagonist because there's only one person so in essence, we become kind of the the person to that protagonist. So we're right there with them. And instead of having to cover two storylines, we're figuring things out as they figure it out because there's no one else, no, there's no other to bounce anything off of. There's always something unique about single person experiences where you know, we follow one person going through a, a deal, and it takes good writing. But ultimately, I think uh, is some of the more provocative uh, horror films. It's because we get to experience it along with them. And I see Diagnosis Horror has joined us. Good to see you, Diagnosis Horror. Thanks so much for hanging out. Drops in saying, Snoogans. Absolutely snoochie boochies. Can't wait for Clerk's Story. I'm looking forward snoogans. to it. <laughs> <laughs> All yeah, right. That, yeah, I was just going to say really quickly, single-person horror, the one downside of it is that so many people think it's so simple to execute that they don't invest in the writing. Right. And they don't have, they're not prepared going in for like working in the physical space and everything. And it's, you can work on a low budget, you can work with a small crew, but you better have a plan and you better have passion. Cause if you're just doing it for the savings, you're just going to end up with a third. Right. But well, on that note, what do we have up next, JL? Yes. For our final film tonight, we are going to, uh, die, the, I, I've been looking forward to talking this one ever since I saw it. So uh, September 10th, 2021, it released, and we have the film Malignant. It is Malignant. I don't care what you say. It is Malignant. I don't care what you say. Let's check out this trailer. All right. Malignant. So, directed by the legendary James Wan, story by James Wan, Ingrid Bisou, and Ethel Cooper, starring Annabelle Wallace, Maddie, ha uh, Maddie Hassan, uh, George Young, uh, Nicole Brianna White, and, um, let's see, that was, and, uh, I want to make sure I point her out, because, and McKenna Grace as, uh, the young Madison, um, because people uh, should recognize that name, but a how to really break this one down for those who have not seen it because it's tough not to spoil this one 
I'm uh, pretty sure a lot of people did see it, but uh, the, uh, so it fills it, Annabelle Wallace plays uh, Madison, who is a who begins to have visions of people being murdered, only to realize the events are happening uh, in real life. I think is the easiest way that I could put it. Um, <laughs> how to not spoil this one? Okay, first and foremost, let's point out one very simple fact: this film was incredibly divisive. So you either absolutely loved it or you absolutely hated it. There was just, yeah, I don't know what it was. There was no middle ground with this. The reviews came out and it was like, this movie's fucking amazing. Oh, really, everything about it was just fantastic. And there were people come out, this thing was fucking trash and bullshit and fuck this movie. And I have to admit, I'm going to tell you straight out. I fall in the loved it camp. I fucking loved this movie. I really, really did. I, I don't know where you fall. Where do you fall on it? Okay? Because there, there's kind of a joy and device of horror. I want to know where you fall on this. Because... You said something earlier. <laughs> this movie felt like you had too many drinks and you went to sleep with a supermodel and you woke up next to some trailer or like a truck stop hooker. It it started out and it had enough to tease me along that I was enjoying it. But the reality is if you go into this movie and people point out understanding there's a bit of a farcical nature to it it goes into such hyperbole with certain elements that people are like this has got to be you know a farce on james wan's own movie making and everything but <laughs> i i really when i went into it tapped into some of the deeper storytelling and without giving the ending away at a certain point because it has what feel like visual action elements with the way it transitions into our dream states and the kills and stuff but then at the end, it's like... That's what like, some of the sets. I mean, come yeah. on. Nothing good ever happened at that hospital. You look at that hospital where she was at. No. She's driving up to the hospital. like, what the fuck is that place? <laughs> it's like nothing yeah, good ever happened there. <laughs> they sent people to torture the crazy out of them back <laughs> in the day, man. But, uh, yeah, and it gets to the end, and there's a sudden shift to so much more of the action element that I was just like, even... Without there is there's a twist. I mean, it's a twist to this movie. I think everybody knows that without knowing what the twist is. Uh, you kind of expect it coming, but it shifted the feel and the pace of the movie so much that I'm just like, you lied to me about who you were. <laughs> so would you say you're in the camp that you that you did not like the movie? I did not. I, I liked two thirds of the movie, and it's just like. It's that friend that you really get along with until you find out they screwed your girlfriend and then you just never want to see him again. Like, you start to have the happy memories and it jumps to the day you found him in bed and you're like, it's like I never want to go back. <laughs> <laughs> so, so and I, there's a couple people in the live chat bring this up really interesting. Um, my, Mike the Honey Badger says that now I need a diaper. <laughs> <laughs> there were some great, there were some fantastic moments in this film. I really, really loved it. I see Travis Brown is, falls in the camp. He loved it as well. Um, let me see here. And the Nova says this looks dope as fuck. I'll have to get uh, get the Blu-ray. You, I think you'll really, really like it. That uh, you know, but the, either you love it or you hate it. It's one of the two. There is no middle ground on this one. And Denova brings up. I think it's unique because it's outside of Juan's universe. He's established the universe of films that he's been making because he's one of the driving forces behind the Conjuring uh, franchise. So the big thing on this one, that the things I love, so, so the things that people pointed out that they did not like was uh, the very far, almost the farcical nature of a lot of the characters. Everything is very extreme. Everything is everything is dialed to eleven at every point. 
So the main protagonist, obviously, you know, we can accept her being at 11 because of what's going on all around her, the vision she's having, you know, the murders that she's seeing, and of course, uh, her internalized experience, of course, the, you know, the, the flashbacks to the past. Everything about her is, is dialed to 11, we can accept that. But everyone around her is also dialed to 11. Her sister is dialed to 11. The cops are dialed to 11. Gabriel is obviously dialed to 11. Her, and everything, and when people are faced with shit, it, it's always maximum. So it can, it can seem very overwrought. Not to mention, the fucking set designs are completely overwrought. The fucking hospital where she was standing at is like this fucking gothic renaissance. Like, what the shit? It's like something constructed by Henry VIII in a fever dream. It's like, who, who takes patience here? It's insane. So everything is big. Everything is huge. Everything is massive. The I love the use of the Seattle Underground, which is so like it's not really well known. People don't are not really familiar with that. I love the use of that, but everything is big. Everything is like, but it's not noisy, which I really really dug. It's just like big and it has this almost gothic feel to it. And so because of that, the film comes off as overwrought and everybody's overdoing it, and we're just going, you know, it's like why are we going so hardcore when we don't need to? But because the action elements. Gabriel in the prisons, you know, when Gabriel is locked up in the prison cell. When we go into the the, the bigger elements, the ho the real horror elements, especially the setups, which didn't rely on jump scares, which I really really liked, just unsettling atmospheric horror. And then all of a sudden, something quick would happen. He didn't fall into the conjuring formula here. Okay, we don't need jump scares to be scary in this respect. We have a legitimate monstrous killer here. That's what sold this movie. That's what. That's why I love this one so much. And not to mention the practical effects. Some of the, the what were practical. Um, the you know, the Gabriel effects were fantastic. I thought everything was great, and it didn't telegraph. I I didn't think it was so obvious. I knew what the twist was going in, but I didn't think it telegraphed it too badly. I loved the way. I could say I could put my shoes with someone who's like who has no idea what to expect and be like, oh, this is intriguing. I could see how they did this. Um, I dug it uh, a whole lot. I think uh, that's part of the joy of divisive horror, though, is that some people are going to absolutely love it, some people absolutely hate it. And I think that's why that's a testament to the success of this film is because real, true, if you, if you want to call it art, even though I, you know, some people you know, would probably harangue, you know, harangue me for calling this art, but in the medium, you want your content, you want your product to convey something, to get something out of the audience. Something visceral, something, you know, something primal. And this one does that. This one either pulls out of you as a horror fan, you fucking love it. Or as a, as a diehard horror fan, you, you'll say, no, nope, this is, fuck this, bolt, you know, and they just react viscerally to it. And they just eviscerate the film. Either way, it gets something out of them. And that is why it's so fucking good. Because that just made it all the better for me. Well, see, to me, that... Some of those elements, that's kind of what set it up for Room for me is because we talked about it a little bit when we were talking about Rabid and the modern version and how sleek everything was when you're talking about a dirty topic. And then with Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies, how using a dirty set and, and bad, quote-unquote, bad film stock, yellowish film stock like the original, kind of upset. I didn't feel that the approach to this so much suited how they were going because if you're going to go overboard and you're going to go spoofy on it, your actors are doing a good job, but you've got a really sleek setup and then you're trying to drop in so many sets that they look good. Yeah, they did, but 
they don't feel I don't want to use the word schlocky because he wasn't going full, you know, Camp Nightmare 13 here. Um, but it it felt like all of that, the approach took it very, technical approach took it very seriously. But then the script and the actors were just like, crank it up to 11. And it's yes. like, what the fuck is happening? Like, <laughs> I like dissonance to a degree, but like, you just... Touched me someplace uncomfortable, JL. <laughs> there, there were so many good, and there was just so many, so much good stuff. I mean, I was able to forgive all of the things that people, you know, chided about this or derided about this film. The, you know, like the over the top, you know, dialogue deliveries, especially from uh, from uh, one of the from the officer's partner, from the guy officer's partner. Um, a lot of the like, oh my god, this is happening. I, I, I get that. I, I was able to look past that because. So many of the sequences were so well done. All of the kills were well done. They weren't over the top. I mean, they, they, they were extreme, but they didn't go beyond because they don't need to. They, I mean, it was just like, stab, 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 stab. It was super violent, and then you're done. We don't need to linger too much on them because the horror is in the villain in and of itself and the, the reveal of the villain. I loved that. The jail, the, the, the jail sequence is one of my favorites that I've watched in some time. I fucking loved that sequence. And how they were able to articulate that into a fight scene. I thought it was brilliant. And um, so much smart. And of course, a really, really good ending. Flipping, you know, like flipping the tables on the, turning the tables on the bad guy. I, I <laughs> but for all of its, for all of its uh, missteps, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was fun. And it's been so long. It has, it's been a while since I've sat down and legitimately just had fun with a horror film and been able to kind of because every time we watch it you know we see that we see we've seen how the sausage is made so we're so familiar with it when we watch movies we literally see them from the from like the from behind the camera we know what's going on we know how a scene is lit we know how they captured sound we know where the you know where they're looking at where the camera setup is and what they're trying to convey we see that we see the angles and it's like knowing the trick knowing the magician's trick before he ever pulls it off it takes it kind of like takes all the mystery out of it so it takes a really, really special kind of movie to make me go, oh, fuck all that. I just want to have fun here. And this is just fun for fun's sake. I really enjoy it. And I think that, that may be why I'm kind of biased is because I've seen so much sausage made. I, I, want to enjoy, I want to enjoy the sausage again. And here I got to do that with Malignant. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So my question, though, I want to ask, I want to ask, given, and this is what's intriguing. I think this is where the, the opinion comes down to. The overwrought nature of the of the line delivery, the dialing everything to eleven from set design to the production uh, to the production levels to the effects to the to the uh, to the kills everything everything uh, ma you know, to the max. Do you think all of this and the rate the way the movie susses out the end? Do you think it was accidental that he was simply trying to do something fun and it just it wound up being this? He was trying to tell a story and it wound up being this way, or do you think all of that was deliberate? He's like, you know what? We have these. Let's just like, you know, he's like, he, like Juan was like, you know what? Movies don't normally do this. Let's deliberately shoot it like this. I want you deliberately to deliver your lines like this. So was it kind of like, you know, we talk about a movie as like accidentally good or like accidentally bad. They try to go for something good, but it wound up being bad. In this respect, what do you think? Do you think all of that was deliberate? Deliberate choices on, on behalf of the director, on behalf of James Wan? Or do you think it was just accidental? Like they just kind of like, stumbled into it what do you think i i think it was for the most part deliberate but like if you read about the inspiration for it i'm trying to remember what it was from because they were talking about it like one of them 
Okay, inspired by Edward Mordrake. Okay, fair enough. Mm -hmm. But then it said like it would be in line with a Giallo film. This was not in line with the Giallo film. I wouldn't and say then, this in line with Giallo anyway, yeah. Yeah, what other? There was another one. Oh, it was influence of horror filmmaker Dario Argento, particularly Tenebra, I Phenomena, could, and Trauma. Yeah, I could see that. I could see it to a degree in the execution, but in the overall plot, like, when you look Definitely how phenomena. all of this is playing out, like, I think they did it intentionally, but I think they were tripping balls the entire time. <laughs> like... <laughs> It's just like, all right. That's a I mean, there's a train. Let's let's we're getting there. Just get us there faster. <laughs> you know, it it wor it works on a very bonkers level. You know, it's a very bonkers movie, and uh, I think that, and I I will side in the fact that I think it was deliberate. I think James Wan deliberately did this uh, for probably for two reasons. One, because he wanted to tell this kind of story in this kind of like ex this extreme way. I got smatterings of Amer of kind of like American horror story on this, of what they kind of convey. This kind of like new wave of Americanized horror and trying to really go extreme in, in, in hard bursts is what it is. Like, bam, extreme, bam, extreme. And he was kind of replicating that. But I also think it was an opportunity to break away from being pigeonholed into the Conjuring franchise. I think that this was the director's attempt to kind of get far away from the shit that he's been stuck in doing which is the Conjuring franchise, because they keep ordering up more movies. They keep making hundreds of millions of dollars. So let's keep making them. He's like, oh, fuck, man. I got to keep making another one and another one and another one. Now I get to go out and break out and do my own kind of thing. It felt very similar to... Um, oh, if I remember... Uh, I want to make sure that I pronounce his name correctly. Um, so the director of the Evil Dead remake, which was uh, um, Fede Alvarez. Okay. Fanny Alvarez did the, uh, directed the, uh, the Evil Dead reboot, requel, whatever, uh, continuation of the story, whatever you yeah. want to call it. And the critical response to that was so, there, there were a lot of people loved it. I love the, the Evil Dead remake. I love Alvarez's uh, Evil Dead. Yeah. I absolutely do. The first five minutes of my jaw was on the fucking floor. So I love that movie from beginning to end. I thought it was a beautiful homage and I thought it was a beautiful what he brought, what the new, what he brought to it that was new. Johnny will disagree with me vehemently on this, but I Johnny love disagrees Dead. with everything. I know, right? So if you're but, happy, Johnny wants you to be sad, and that's where Johnny lives. <laughs> <laughs> that's where he lives. So nicest guy in the world, but he'll ruin your good day. <laughs> the the uh, just a just a, a rain cloud that just kind of <laughs> so what Alvarez did because the next movie that Alvarez came out with was Don't Breathe, and if you notice everything about Don't Breathe is the complete opposite of Evil Dead. Okay? It's like everything... And the whole point of that was is that the, the complaints about Evil Dead were all of the things like it was too loud or it was too this or too that or too whatever, blah, 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 or too gory or too... Whatever. There are all these things that it was too much of something. So there was so much of that feedback that Alvarez came back with a movie... That was literally the exact, po the polar opposite of Evil Dead. It was quiet. You know, there was not a lot of gore. It was simplistic. You know, it was all the, it, everything was completely different from Evil Dead. And he did that as a response to all the criticisms he got from this. I think all the criticism that James Wan got has gotten from the Conjuring universe. It's try, it's, 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 it's overdone. It's boring at this point. It's formulaic. We can anticipate what's happening. You're not doing anything new. It's the same, you know, the the same tread territory over and over and over again. 
And so he was like, fuck it. Let me go in a completely you know, the, the exact polar opposite. Bam, here's fucking malignant. Everything that the Conjuring universe is not. And I and I dug that. I like that. I like him just kind of like, I'm gonna he's got the I'm, I'm gonna flex and bust out of this shit kind of thing going on. Well, you get a lot of films that are stuck in that rut where their early films are great, their later films are too similar to it, and basically they're just fighting to pay the bills. I mean, they, they've developed a lifestyle, um, and whether they're doing it for admiration or for money, they feel they have to keep doing that, and then they reach a point here, like, you get this, where, you know, it's a polar opposite reaction, but my question is, is it really a good idea to make a movie based on what you don't want it to be? Because can you really have a vision for a movie based on that? Because really you want to know what you do want it to be. And I'm not gonna like I'm not gonna say that this is a bad movie. I I mean I'll I'll shit all over. Well, I, I will say the entire witchcraft <laughs> series sucks. But outside of that, I generally while I shit on the movie, I will never say that no one should like this movie because there's gonna be somebody else out there that gets what the person was doing. Everybody okay. that watches horror has different tastes and everything. So I may shit on movies, but I won't shit on a person's taste in movies. Except with bowl. Um, well, I, fucking, I, 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 I fucking love this one. I absolutely did. Um, I know it was a very, very divisive horror. I think there's there's some real uh, some real fan joy in divisive horror. Do you love it or do you hate it? Uh, but my big question on this one is, for those who went in blind and didn't know anything about this movie going in and just went in and saw it first and foremost, so what I want to ask the audience is, did you see that twist coming? There is a lot of argumentation out there what a lot of people didn't like was that the twist was telegraphed that every that you could figure it out from the very from almost a quarter of the way through of what was actually going in. Now we're not going to spoil it for those who haven't seen the movie. I, I'm you know, I'm not I just don't want to do that because it's a, it's a very cool reveal when it all comes out. I'm curious, did you see that twist coming? If you saw it, was it telegraphed or did, were you surprised by? It? Did you think, oh holy shit, that's fucking cool? Let us know what you think in the course in the live chat or, or in the comments below, or let us know on Discord. You know, we uh, we really want to build that audience up there. Of course, we you know we show movies there as well. I may show *Malignant* because uh, for those who haven't seen it, I can show it in the Discord. But ultimately, uh, we want to know what you th what you thought. Did you see it coming, or were you surprised by it? Did it catch you off guard? Definitely let us know. Comments weekendhorrorgmail.com or here in the live chat. Uh, Travis Brown says I did not see the twist coming because the trailer did not show very much, and you're right. They didn't give it away in the trailer, which was fucking shocking. They did, well, unlike The Nun, where all the scary parts of the movie were in the fucking trailer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like with The Nun, the plot didn't matter. It was just there to, to yeah. sow the path between jump scares. <laughs> this one, I kind of saw it coming. I was hoping for something different. It's like, James, turn the truck. But James has been doing acid, so James is just going right for that cliff. <laughs> I am turning the truck. <laughs> <laughs> I still can't get over when they did the reveal of the hospital. And I was like, what the fuck is this house on Haunted Hills shit? Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, my fucking Vincent Price, Jeffrey Combs. It's <laughs> like, what's it, going anytime on? Anytime you've got tiny white tiles on the floor and medium to big white tiles on the wall, yeah. there's some creepy shit going down at this hospital. You never should have checked your loved one into <laughs> it. <laughs> Sir Captain says, already said it three times. Telegraphed, insulted by it, hated it. <laughs> I totally I totally get it, Chasm. I totally insulted get it. Insulted by it like it kicked his puppy. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck, man? <laughs> Diagnosaur says, I picked up on I picked up on a lot of it. I couldn't perceive the scope of crazy though. <laughs> 
That'll uh, give it. Says, yeah. Fred Edges says, I'm yet to watch it, but I'm definitely going to now. Awesome, Fred Edges. Good to see you. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight. And uh, yeah, uh, I think I'm going to I'm gonna show this one. I think I'm going to show this one in the Discord because this one is an absolute blast. And I, I would not mind sitting through it again. All right. So I think it's about that time. It is trivia time. All right. Let's and get up the live chat and get set up for it. For this trivia question, we are giving away another Week in Horror Season 4 shirt. Now, those shirts are not out yet. They're not available. These are essentially kind of like the, I guess, the, pre, the pre-gifting. the um, pre But as soon as those shirts get available, we are going to unveil the artwork at the season finale, which is in a couple of weeks. This is our 50th episode of Season 3. Two more weeks. We got the season finale of Season 3, and we're going to unveil the new artwork for... Uh, the season for season four, our new cover artwork for season four. And of course, that artwork will go on the t shirt as developed by um, our in house artist, Joshua Olson, who kicks fucking ass. I, I love this new artwork. I think you guys are going to love it too. And be sure to uh, check out his store at badsamurai.store to check out all of his other designs. But uh, now that you got the live chat up, for the person who gets this tribute question correctly, and I anticipate it's probably going to go pretty fast because I, I kind of did, did a softball on this one. Um, you will win a Week in Horror official Season 4 shirt. So, Aaron, when you're ready, give him the question. All right, here we go. The evil twin trope was the focus of what Stephen King novel and film adaptation? Again, the evil twin trope was the focus of what Stephen King novel and film adaptation? I know this is going to come in fast. They're just oh, like, wow. <laughs> And blow up. Ooh, we're getting close, but we're not Damn. there. No, wait, no, no, no. I'm wrong. Almost. Almost close. Wrote it in the last name. Close. I don't see them coming in. They must be coming in quick. I, I get. They're fairly close, but they're not hitting it. Wrote Bingo. Wrote me low last name. Finally got it. There got he it goes. Dead on. Corrected it. <laughs> yes, wrote it in the last name. You are correct. It was the dark half. Uh, where a man is faced with the incarnation of his, uh, I guess his, um, what do they call him? The uh, parasitic twin? No, no, no. It was his, uh, his, uh, his su- su- uh, pseudonym. No, no. What the the when you uh, go by another name as an author? Yeah, it's a it's a pseudonym or a pen name or a uh, nom de plume. I think. His pa- that author, that version of him, it comes to life. And uh, he has to uh, contend with the, the, his evil half is what it is. So, yes, uh, the dark half is that film. Congratulations, wrote it in the last name. Oh, that is, uh, you, that's the second time you've won a season four shirt. So, there you go. So, if you want to give that to somebody else or if you want that for yourself, uh, then we will get that out to you uh, ASAP as soon as we get those unveiled. Oh, Sir Kevin says, grr, my YouTube crashed. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, Dinosaur says, uh, this looks like it's going to be a pretty expensive game. Is uh, Oh, he's talking to Travis Brown. Uh, what are they talking about? Oh, I don't know. Oh, uh, a, uh, they're talking about a game, yeah. Uh, name. Game. yeah. George Stark is the dark half that you are correct. Yeah. All right. Based upon so, Richard Bachman. Richard Bachman. Mm-hmm. All right, wrote it. I'm going to put your name down. For this one, and he has won the of the past five. He has won uh, of the past five. He has won four of them. Dude, so he's got to be like sweat band keyboard ready beforehand <laughs> prepped. So I'm gonna put Rodin's name down for this one. Rodin, if you want to give that to somebody else, or if you want that for yourself, just let me know. 
And as soon as those shirts are available, we will get those out, uh, get those printed out to everybody as soon as we do the unveil in the season finale. All right. Congratulations again. Wrote it no last name. Okay, so that is going to bring another episode of Week in Horror to a close. Thank you all so much for listening. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. Join us next week when we look back at the brutal hunting horror Eden Lake, Extreme Haunted House Terror in Haunt, a return to Burkittsville, Maryland in Blair Witch, and the 70s Canadian horror effort The Clown Murders. Those trailers are actually up in the Discord as we speak. A massive shout out to all of our amazing patrons who continue to help us make the Week in Horror the incredible success it has become. Thank you all so very much for your support. You see your names down there in the banner. Check it out. Uh, Patreon.com slash Week in Horror. And you can see all the cool, tasty tiers that we have available for you. Joshua also does all of our amazing artwork for the show. And his designs are incredible. Hit his store up at www.badsamurai.store. And for more horror fun, be sure to follow us to all of the socials for daily horror posts as a part of our daily splatter. And be sure to combat that evil algorithm by dropping a comment, liking, subscribing, and smashing the living fuck out of that bell. Because YouTube notifications are a bitch. If you like what we do here and you want to support us, we have a Patreon. Uh, we have our Patreon link. You can go check out our tiers. But we also have our PayPal link as well, all down in the description. Links to all of this, including the Discord community that we've been letting you do, letting you all know about, are down in the description. You can go there and you can hang out with us, watch movies, engage with us uh, directly. So we hope to see you over there. And remember, everybody, the goal here at Week in Horror is global horror domination. And we can't do it without you, our amazing audience. So pretty pleased with the severed, infested head of Clint Howard on top. Go and share the fuck out of our little show. We love you all so much. Thank you for being the greatest audience a podcast could have. I am JL. I'm Aaron. We will see you all next week. And as always, stay scared. <laughs>